on April 15, 2013, two homemade pressure cooker bombs detonated just seconds apart from the finish line of the annual Boston Marathon race, killing three people and injuring more than 260 others. Welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. I am your co-host, Bryn Hinson, here along with our host, Michael Warren, and our guest, retired FBI Special Agent Kyle Vowinkle, a member of that agency's Crisis Negotiation Unit. Now, last week in episode 53, Kyle walked us through the details that occurred shortly after the horrific event during Boston's Patriots Day celebration. Today, he returns to give his firsthand account of how, with the help of his team, he was able to peacefully negotiate the surrender of that bombing suspect. So, Kyle, to kind of pick up where you left off last week, one suspect is dead. The other one is now holed up in a boat in a residential area. Now, the FBI and local authorities, they attempted multiple tactics to get this suspect to surrender, but uh, that was to no avail, correct? After the flashbangs do not produce the desired effect, I don't want to say we're twiddling our thumbs because we weren't, but we were taking a pause thinking, okay, we've, we've tried everything. And if you look at the use of force continuum, Normally, officers, you escalate, you know, start off with just your presence and then you escalate to, you know, verbal commands and then maybe escalate to non-lethal if necessary. And then, you know, at the very top is lethal force if required, save lives. Well, now we had gone all the way up and it hadn't produced any effect. And the FBI director through SIOC, the Strategic Information Operations Center, SIOC sends word back down, hey, let's try to negotiate. I'm on the radio, right? I'm on the internal comms. I'm not on that the channel with headquarters, of course, the team leader says, hey, Kyle, you're up. Those four words. And I thought, holy smokes, it's now all on my shoulders. The nation's watching, yeah. right? I have to ask you this because, because you talked about the continuum. And in fact, what, what had happened, it had started at the top and come back. We're going backwards at this point. Right. Yeah, it's a reverse use of force. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, I guess, how do you, you're a professional, how do you go from that incredibly high emotional level and get yourself in a place where you're able to try and talk to somebody. You're not even talking to them yet, but there would be many people that would struggle to be able to come up with the ability to speak because they can't come down. How do you prepare for that? Because you talk about being prepared. You can't do it at the time of the event. How did you prepare yourself before that so that you could come down? I really think it goes just to the training and the background. Being a former HRT operator, I've been shot at. I've been in combat. I've been in numerous life and death situations and here he we were close enough right if he had bombs or weapons he could have fired at any one of us or thrown them at any one of us we were that close but i also knew that i had the baddest team backing me up so i knew that if he did you know try to do something crazy and take us out that he would go out with us and we would take him so there was some confidence from the past experiences i I knew what it felt like to be in pressure-filled situations so that helped tremendously having that again inner confidence knowing that I can only control what I can control, right? So I focused really singularly on my task. My job was to establish communications with a non-responsive subject. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you were one of the most highly trained law enforcement individuals in the world when it came to dealing physically with somebody who was trying to hurt you or somebody else. Yet it was that training that allowed you to be calm enough to go and talk to somebody. 
It was the level of training that prepared you for that event. And I think that's often lost in society today, that understanding that it's the ability, the confidence to know that I can handle it if it goes bad, that allows you to be calm enough to do it and try to do it without going to that level. No, that's precisely it. You hit the nail on the head. So I, I walk into the second house right next to 67 Franklin. It's, it's right next door on the uh, left side, I think the west side, and the uh, second story window. I open the uh, window and I can see the boat. It's maybe like 20 feet from the boat, right? I'm so close. I, I don't need a, a loudspeaker. And plus, I didn't want to have a mechanical device. I wanted to try to connect just with using my voice, you know, to the subject. And I knew it'd be able to carry that short distance. So I took cover the best I could, you know, below the window frame and I'm alone, right? I don't have my, normally we always negotiate with a coach and a team leader. Remember my partners were not there yet. So that's the other thing I was going solo. So again, you talk about the pressure, <laughs> it's showtime. It's all you. No, it's all me. It's <laughs> all you, buddy. <laughs> and right, 400 people are listening. Sioc has the drone overhead. They're watching and listening to every word too. So I knew every utterance would be scrutinized and second-guessed by everyone present and everyone back at headquarters. So, yeah, that was 100% pressure, but you can't let it consume you, right? Again, I didn't focus on that. I just acknowledge it like, yep, this is a big deal. (laughs) Lives on the line, but I've been trained to do this job, and I know I can do it. And I called out, hey, this is Kyle. I'm with the police. I'm here to talk with you, right? So my first goal in uh, any negotiation is to establish communications with the subject. All right, remember, he had just faced that lethal force tsunami, right, of hundreds of rounds fired. I start talking, and there's no response. Just because he doesn't respond, though, doesn't mean he's not listening, right? So I'm conveying reassuring, non-threatening statements, asking him, hey, if you can't talk, if you can't verbalize a reply, maybe you can make a sound, you can hear me, you know, bang on the bottom of the boat or shake the, uh, you know, boat tarp so I know that you can hear my voice. So for 10 minutes, all you can hear, it's eerie silence. When before, right, there's cacophony of rounds fired and total mayhem. And now it's just the sound of my voice for 10 minutes. So again, imagine that one-way dialogue. Everyone listening, there's nothing coming back. It's like talking, we say, to an empty house in negotiation parlance. So after 10 minutes, and I'm asking him to respond, you know, I'm trying to vary your language, right? You don't want to sound like a parrot when you're talking to a subject. Even though it's one-way dialogue, you have to vary, like I said, the language. As each you know, second passes, there's unspoken pressure to tactically resolve this situation, right? Because law enforcement, we're in potential danger from the weapons or explosives he may have in the boat. And everyone is painfully aware of what happened with his previous confrontations with police. Finally, he groans, moves his hand on the, the tarp, right? Talk about an instant feeling of happiness, success, joy, knowing that he can hear my voice and he was responding. Were you 100% sure that he was still alive? Not when I first started, no. Because I, I got the sense when I was I was watching and even the coverage, just like, I'm not quite sure if he's, you know, if everything's going right with him in there. Because they were, I mean, they were bombarding this boat and th- there's no movement, no nothing, right? Yeah, nothing. So actually, no, part of that, that almost made it easier in, in the pressure. Because uh, I told myself he is probably dead, Kyle, as, as I started the conversation too. And I thought, well, you know, dead people don't have great conversations, but at least I'll have a good one-way conversation. <laughs> I'll sound good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> When you start talking, I mean, you're talking to to one person, right? but the reality is not just the electronic listening, but there are a bunch of people that are listening to you. 
I mean, you've got your perimeter people. It, it just seems like that would be an incredibly stressful period to be coming up with. You talked about changing your tone in your language. That would seem to be very intentional, but also incredibly exhausting at the same time. It was. And I actually was too singularly focused. I'll explain here in a moment because I, I try to block out the rest of it, people listening and the other environmental circumstances that I could not control. So I, I will tell you, this is a funny anecdote. I'm there, you know, during this 10 minutes, one way conversation and my phone buzzes. I had put it on, you know, vibrate. I thought, well, this is a really bad time for me to be taking any calls. So <laughs> I, I do pull my phone out because I'm just going to put it down. But then I, I just glance at the screen and it's my partner, Vince, is calling me. And again, I think, boy, this is really not a good time, Vince. <laughs> I, I like dart away from the window, right? I, I answer really quickly. Yeah, Vince, I'm, I'm talking to the subject, right? I have a whisper. He says, hey, Kyle, good job, you know, varying your language. Maybe, maybe try saying this, right? And I said, oh, thanks. Great, Vince. And I hang up, right? I put the phone down. So I go back to, you know, the one-way dialogue. Two minutes later, Vince is calling me again on the phone. <laughs> I answer the phone. Hey, Vince, what, what are you doing? Hey, also, I'm doing a thing right now, Vince. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm starting to get like frustrated with Vince. I, I, and he says, hey, you know, try. Uh, he, he offered some suggestion. I can't think of it at the top of my head, but it was a good, good point. And I said, OK, I'll try that. And I hang up on it again. And sure enough, two minutes later, he calls a third time. And right now I'm really pissed. I, I said, Vince, what are you doing? <laughs> and he says, hey, dummy, I'm going to be your coach over the phone. Leave the phone open and I'm going to talk you through it because I can't be there with you in person over the phone. And it was like a, you know, revelation. Of course. Stop hanging up on me, Kyle. <laughs> yeah. I was too singularly focused right on establishing communications. And again, I didn't know where he was at, but he brilliantly created a solution. He's going to call me and coach again via the phone, open line. So, you know, kind of a funny anecdote. I was so focused. I kept hanging up on my coach. <laughs> <laughs> was Vince one of the people that was actually at the mall with you? Yes. He's in proximity, but he's not, he's not in like you are immediate danger area. You know what I mean? He does provide a probably because we do tend to get tunnel visioned uh, a little bit broader perspective on what's going on. Well, actually, I didn't know at the time where he was at. I just remember I knew he got stopped by the fence, but it, but it <laughs> turned out he actually, they did make their way around. He and Mark, they were my two senior colleagues and Vince was my coach and Mark was like the tactical liaison. So they actually were on that front side of Franklin. So they were pretty close, but I don't know when he called me where he was exactly then. <laughs> events hey if you want to talk to me come up here with me buddy. Yeah. let's yeah. go <laughs> uh well he didn't know where i was at either and again there was right we're very briefly talking on the phone but just kind of very comical actually it was a good little moment for me to realize hey you have support here right he's going to help you and vince is one of the best negotiators in the world so it was great to have him there backing me up because right think what cnu is trying to do is right what lethal force what flashbangs what commands had failed to do we were trying to you know now establish communications and build rapport and try to persuade this guy to surrender again using the reverse continuum of force as we talk about so we're going you know from the very bottom back up so i do get him right uh, to groan so i know he can hear me and which is fantastic we now have two-way communications so really the second step of negotiations is to try to build some rapport and gain compliance or gain cooperation from the subject right can we get him to leave his weapons in the boat and exit the craft peacefully without any additional violence. And now our previous proactiveness, the previous preparation that me and my colleagues had done was now we're in the position we'd prepared for. We're communicating with the bomber and I was armed with intimate personal details and positive themes to exploit from my conversations with his wrestling coach. So 
now I start talking to them and I, I want to strengthen that initial connection, right? This very thin connection I have to them. I shared, hey, I was a wrestler also in high school, right? I'm trying to lower tension, build a little trust between us. Also threw out the names of other people, you know, were concerned about him, his family members that wanted to see him live. Uh, not the uncle that said they deserve to die, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Leave that part out. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to give him a little bit of sense of control that maybe give him some options. So actually there is one audio clip and I'll send it to you. It's the only one I know of that you can hear my voice negotiating to him. And I say, you can come out on your own terms. One of the uh, media outlets captures my voice. That's the only segment again that I know of out there. You can decide the outcome of your fate. And he finally, he says his first word, water. And this is maybe like minute 20, maybe 22. He says water. And that's fantastic, right? When a subject needs or wants something from law enforcement, that's fantastic. Because now we have something to offer him, right? We have something to provide him. He wants something from law enforcement. So I said, I have tons of ice cold water out here. I got buckets of ice cold water, but it's outside the boat. You have to come off the boat to get the water. How difficult is it? And walk us through this, because I'm genuinely fascinated. This is a person who has nothing to lose, and he knows that the outcome is not going to be good either way. He's either going to go to jail for a really long time for the rest of his life, or possibly even put to death. How do you rationally talk to someone who has nothing to lose and convince them, let's let's end this peacefully? A fantastic question. And that is the art and science of negotiation and connecting with people, right? This is a terrorist who had killed three people and injured 260 other people. I wanted this guy dead as much as everybody else did. However, he may have knowledge of a bomb about to detonate in downtown Boston or New York City. He may know of another terror cell that is planting bombs as we speak. So I wanted to capture him alive. So it was my job to put my personal feelings aside and my job to try to connect with this individual to build some rapport, right? Inch by inch, build some trust and give him some hope to live. Cause exactly that he had nothing to live for. And there's some writings inside the boat. We'll talk about, he had essentially given up on life, right? He's thought his brother was dead, but he wasn't sure. And he knew the whole world was looking for him and he was a wanted and, and despised man. So that right is all on my shoulders and my team's shoulders to try to give him a little bit of hope to motivate him to want to live. Not easy to do. And, and had I not had that preparation and had I not talked to his wrestling coach, I, we would not have persuaded him to come off the boat. So that preparation was absolutely hmm. instrumental. Hmm. I, I tell him, hey, if you stay on the boat, you are going to die in the boat. I said, we're not going to come on the boat, but if you stay there, you're going to die. And this is maybe minute 30, 35. And he says, I can't move. I, I can't get off the boat. And I said, you're going to die in the boat. And Vince again doesn't call me because we're already on the open line. He says, hey, Kyle, let's take a break. You know, two minute break. Let those words sink in. You're going to die in the boat with the subject. Right. Let him reflect on the situation. Because I said, you're alone. You're scared as I'm demonstrating empathy, trying to build rapport. You know, I'm trying to empathize with him. Right. I'm not agreeing with anything he did, but I'm not passing judgment on it either. I'm non-confrontationally trying to build that rapport. You're hurt. You're scared. You're confused. You're all alone on the boat. If you come off the boat, there's friends, there's families, members that love you. There's medical care. There are a lot of pauses off the boat. So my coach, again, Vince, great idea to take that break because he said he couldn't move. We allow the subject some time to kind of reflect, think about his situation. We see a, a report from the snipers, I think, that he's moving his arms. So I re-engage 
but our assessment, right, is things are trending in a positive direction, right? We have two-way dialogue. We have no new violent behavior, no new threats. And so headquarters does ask, like, what's the status? And luckily, I didn't have to respond to this. I was more convinced taking care of the headquarters pressure. But they're, you know, demanding updates every 10 minutes. You can just imagine, again, the pressure on the law enforcement to know, like, what's going on every second of this incident. So thankfully, with those indicators of progress, it kind of buys us some more time, even though there's that action imperative, right? Law enforcement, and this is one of the hard things, too, to train people out of is don't take an action just because you're impatient. It needs to be the right action for the right reason. Patience is required, but things were right. We're moving in the right direction. So I re-engage after the break, uh, you know, to verbally contain him and distract him. We don't want him to take any tactical action. And this is actually when I gave him that reality check. Hey, we're not going to come on the boat but we're not going away either, right? I wanted him to kind of understand the situation he's in. We're not coming on the boat, but we're not going away. If you want to live, you have to come off the boat. And I reiterated those previous themes of the positives, you know, compared and contrasted his situation on the boat with all the positives off the boat, you know, ratcheted up the pressure, non-confrontationally directing him to get off. Comes off the boat, he lives, sees those who love him, he stays, he'll probably, he will die there. Nothing good happens on the boat. This is when I invoked his wrestling coach nickname. This is the pivotal moment. I said, I know you're hurt and confused, Jahar. Jahar was his nickname, but only his close friends knew. And that Coach Payak had told me that was his nickname, right? It was like a lightning bolt when I said Jahar from me to him, because he knew instantly that I knew who he, he was. I knew his background. I knew his nickname. And I could almost feel that like electricity, that connection between us when I mentioned his name. And that was the key point when I started to be able to persuade and influence him. And that's what... After that, then he started moving himself to the other side, right? He said he can't move, but I said, you have to move. And he starts pulling himself inch by inch to the side. Well, when you use the nickname, then doesn't that almost give him the sense that, hey, this guy can be trusted because somebody I trust trusted him? You know, it's trust by proxy. Absolutely. Too often, I think that we, we don't take the time to get that information up front that will make us successful in the end. And because you took that time, it helped to make you successful in this case. Right. And as I mentioned before, I, I'm convinced if we were not armed with the intimate details from Coach Payak, we would not have been successful in resolving this because that was the, again, that lightning bolt. And I told him also, I, you know, I invoked his wrestling pass and my wrestling pass because he, he moved like an inch or two. He said, I can't move any further. I can't move. And I said, he had to finish the match. Finish the match, Jahar. He's inching over, and this takes like 20 minutes. Super slow, painfully slow, but he's moving. We can see him, right, moving over to the side of the boat. So now think about the behavioral change. You know, my words have caused to transpire, right? He's heeding negotiators' directions, right? Through only the power of words, we've compelled the bomber to do what he said he couldn't do, right, moving himself. So he pulls himself over to the edge. He's able to lift up his left leg over the edge of the boat. It's an amazing moment, right? When you see him there on the edge, one I'll never forget. You know, it had gone from a chaotic, dangerous, volatile situation to now one that's controlled, orderly, that had focus, order, and direction due to the HRT team leader instilling order in the chaos, negotiators, you know, me connecting with the bomber, right? We focused on those behaviors, which would increase our tactical advantage while decreasing the law enforcement risk. Slow, painful, methodical surrender process. We're talking them through. There's the step down from the boat. As you come off a boat, you know, there's a trailer and there's like a step above the wheel well. So I tell him, hey, just come down, step on that to hop off the boat. And then he has that left leg over the side. And he, he says, I can't move my right leg. I can't move it up over the edge of the boat. Everything kind of stops. He can't move it. 
He kind of leans forward, like leans against the gunnel, the edge of the boat. And I said, hey, man, stay with me. Stay with me. It looks like he's right, exerted all of his energy. He's drained himself and he's like bleeding. He's wounded. He's been there for hours and hours and hours since early morning, you know, since one in the morning. He has no more energy. I, you know, motivate him. Hey, you got to sit back straight up, sit back straight up. He's like drifting, looks like in and out of consciousness. He falls forward again. So, hey, man, you got to stay with us. You got to finish the match. You got to stay up. So we're thinking, is this like real, right? Is he truly about to pass out and fall back in the boat? Or is it a lure, right? Does he want to suck in and draw law enforcement near and then detonate some device right next to the side of the boat and, and kill more law enforcement? In truly d- dilemma now, because every second counts, right? If he is truly unconscious or about to fade from consciousness, which I assess he was, and he falls back in the boat, we will have lost all those gains, the tactical advantage and negotiation advantage were lost, right? If he's now unconscious back inside the boat. Uh, I'm talking to you know Vince and Mark, and they're talking to the, the team leader, and we collectively say, hey, I don't think he can come off the boat. I don't think he can lift that right leg off the boat, right? But now the subject's compliant. And I said, hey, lift your hands up. Show me your hands so I can see both his hands. He's got nothing in his hands. I said, hey, lift your shirt up. I want to see your chest. I want to make sure there's nothing on you, right? Because we're looking for potential IEDs strapped to his chest. I'd seen that in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now we've seen there's no weapons, at least on you know 80% of his body. I can't see his like, right thigh and down, but we can see all the rest of his body. And we have a compliant subject. So we talked and Vince and Mark said, hey, we think talking to the team leader, you guys should go up, send tactical to go pull him off the side of the boat because he cannot pull himself off the boat. That's our assessment, right? And if we debate or dilly-dally too much longer, he's going to pass out and fall back inside the boat. So in one of the most magnanimous leadership decisions I've ever seen, that HRT team leader, right, who had a dozen of his men there, could have easily taken the credit and sent HRT operators to go pull him off the boat and put him in handcuffs. He realized the situation was you know, much less risky now, right? Because we had lowered the risk significantly. We have a compliant subject who's unarmed and who's listening to our directions. So he gathers six tactical guys that are near him, six local, you know, Massachusetts State Police. And uh, actually, it's like a combined tactical force. There's like six different officers from two or three different departments. And he tells them, hey, you guys can go up, put the cuffs on him. All right. So, and I'm talking to the Vince, we're coordinating all this. They have their red lasers on them. And I tell them, hey, you see the lasers? If you want to live, you listen to my directions, right? And he had multiple red lasers on him. And I said, if you move or if you don't follow my directions, we will shoot you there where those red lasers are. Do you understand? And he said, yes. So unequivocally wanted to make sure he understood the consequences for noncompliance. And we didn't want him, right, making a furtive movement as they were approaching. So I talked him through, I socialized what was going to happen. They're going to come up, the guys in uniform, they're going to have a shield, and then they're going to help you off the side of the boat. Do you understand? Yes. So it was positively framed instructions, you know, followed by a lethal reality check. Verbally prepared him, right? So he wouldn't be surprised. And then they approach the boat and they yank him off. He is handcuffed. So what started out is an extremely volatile situation with a non-compliant subject. Thanks to HRT and CNU synchronizing efforts, we were able to lower the risks using words and actively listening. We were able to develop rapport with the subject and he followed my directions. He was safely taken into custody. One of the most chaotic manhunts in U.S. history. One of the most incredibly tense situations or standoffs in memory was over astoundingly without any additional bloodshed. The FBI, specifically HRT and CNU, peacefully resolved one of the biggest manhunts in our nation's history.
first off, thank you for peacefully resolving this issue. Everyone that was involved in this amazing effort. As they say in the podcasting world, a lot to unpack here. And I have a couple of questions. Sure. How important do you think, and, and number one, I'm just an average person, I no law enforcement background. So I, I don't want to second guess anybody and I don't want to victim blame because I don't think that's the way to go about it. But I do think it's important to learn from situations. Do you think that it's important to have an outside entity such as the FBI, a federal level, come in and take hold of the situation because those on a local level had too much emotion attached to it and they were unable to separate themselves saying, you know, this is our town. We're not going to let this person do this to our town. How important is it to have an outside entity come in and kind of take over charge of the situation? Uh, It's vital. And actually, I saw that in my first office in Los Angeles. I was on the FBI SWAT team there. And I remember that I think it was the LAPD had an officer shot and killed in the line of duty. Intentionally, the LAPD SWAT was not sent to the person's house, right? It was, I think, when the San Bernardino SEB was going to go handle the arrest because of that exact reason, right? The emotions involved when one of your own is shot or in your home turf can be so much that it affects your judgment and decision making. And you don't want to give any opportunity for a defense lawyer or individual lawyer to say how you were motivated by your anger from that previous incident. So it also kind of removes any element of doubt after the fact. The other thing too, that are one of the main reasons that HRT exists is it's a national level asset. That's all HRT and CNU do is train each and every day for critical incidents. And as great as their state and local partners are, right, they just don't have the resources and capabilities that the federal government has. Laboratory dedicated to investigating explosives, for example, or the behavioral analysis or the canine or the communications infrastructure, you know, those abilities, right, are just such high cost point. But HRT is able to bring them with CNU to the table to these incidents. You know, it's not just that emotional factor, too. It's the kind of depth of experience that the Bureau can bring to a situation. And I like Brent's question there, but I'm a big believer in the why. Bringing in an outside entity like that and the fact that you talk to this guy, we're all done with the why of reducing risk for the public and for the officers. A byproduct was it made it safer for the bad guy. That's the why, because if, if we if we do it some other way, then we put our people at a higher level of risk. And the job's risky enough as it is. Exactly. That's one of the main reasons I became a negotiator. I didn't care about the subjects, right? I cared about my brothers and sisters in uniform who were going up to affect arrests. So I want to do everything in my power to kind of lower the risks to them. I, they brought an interesting subject up in the documentary. And I wanted to get your feelings on it because I think it is something that we need to at least discuss. Motivations for why they do this certain thing and what elements or what things funneled into their lives to bring them to the point where they felt like they needed to blow something up and and hurt people. And I think examining that can help us hopefully understand the human condition a little bit better. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, w- I was not an investigator, right, of the case. I was just involved right in a resolution. He, he did leave some notes, like he scribbled these notes on the boat before we got there. I'll just read a couple of the little tidbits because this may provide some insight. We assess that his older brother was more of the leader and he was the follower of the younger brother. Uh, but he wrote this on the boat. I'm jealous of my brother who received the reward of uh, Inshallah before me. I can't read 
the exact writing is in Arabic. Uh, I do not mourn because his soul is very much alive. God has a plan for each person. Mine was to hide in this boat and shed some light on our actions. I ask Allah to make me a shaheed to allow me to return to him to be among the righteous people in the highest levels of heaven. So he is ready and prepared to die, right? According to those writings. And then he also writes more. I bear witness. There is no God but Allah. The U.S. government is killing our innocent civilians. But most of you know that. As a Muslim, I can't stand to see such evil go unpunished. We Muslims are one body. You hurt me, you hurt us all. But at least that's how Muhammad wanted to be. The radicalization, right, is the motivation. But obviously, you know, several, you know, Muslim scholars came out and, and said, right, there's no justification for what they did. And so they're using that to justify their actions, but it's unbiased. I don't want to use it as justification, but I think it's important to at least try to understand or pinpoint what made him this way. And I think that that is important to examine uh, because that will help us understand future situations from happening, hopefully. A lot of times what we see in these situations is at least a perceived lack of hope. You know, what, why, why do people join criminal gangs? They join it for the acceptance. They, they couldn't see any real hope. And it's a misguided attempt for hope. It's very difficult to apply logical, rational thinking to irrational activity. They're they're always going to be in conflict with each other. I mean, not just in the criminal world. We see it everywhere. You look at somebody and say, what were you thinking? The brains are in two different places, and we're never going to be able to marry those up. I I just want to ask a couple questions here. Brent talked about it earlier, how it seemed like the whole negotiation process was just completely ignored on the Netflix documentary. It just seems so unbelievable that, that it was ignored, but is it perhaps because well, there's a lack of understanding of what the process is and why the process is so important? Or it's not as glamorous as some of the other stuff. Yeah, I think it's both. They're not. It's definitely not as glamorous, right? It's not as exciting, you know, guys busting through the door and, you know, tactical resolution gets everyone's blood, you know, rolling. But also, I, I don't think because the Bureau, right, didn't talk about this and no one else, the scene talked about that resolution which kind of surprises and baffles me because yeah on the netflix series he says like one sentence yeah they negotiated him out <laughs> but, but as you've heard there's so much more that went into it and it, and it is a, i think a riveting captivating story and again highlights the value of negotiators and that synchronizing tactical and negotiators efforts and it's a remarkable success you know without additional bloodshed so for it not to be on there especially waco great netflix series i thought it was a great one on waco which did show the negotiation side. So I don't know if it's a fact of them not knowing or, you know, what really the issue is that it wasn't accurately portrayed in there because they're really missing out on a key part of the story. And I actually have written down on my notes here uh, talking about that. We tend to overlook or discount things that we're not as competent in. And, and when you look at what happened with Gary in Waco, certain groups have a bias towards tactical operations because that's what their training's in that that's what their expertise is in and and i think it's a a human condition that we have to be intentional about being open to other possibilities or other other ideas i'm taking a a class right now called brain-centric design and it hit me a couple weeks ago the the instructor says stop stopping at the first right answer because there can be more than one right answer and there can be more than one resolution to an incident. And you were ready for the violent resolution, but you were able to accomplish the nonviolent one. Yeah. Great point. And just to kind of, you know, end it. So he's successfully handcuffed, right? He's immediately given 
medical aid. He's given water. Right. So just compare and contrast how we treat him with that, you know, first aid. You know, I treat him with respect and dignity when I was talking to him and we treat him as a victim when he comes off, even though he didn't treat people well at all. Right. He murdered two women, child and again, injured at the 260. But nonetheless, he's in the ambulance. The team leader says, hey, Kyle, can you ride with him to the hospital? Sure. To maintain the chain of custody on the subject. Absolutely. So I hop in and I'm just sitting there next to him on the, you know, gurney. He's kind of fading in and out. You know, he's got oxygen mask on him. He's got, you know, IV paramedics working on him. And at one point he, he reaches out for my hand, right? He sees me there and he says, how is my brother doing? All right. So think about that one moment. He had distanced himself from law enforcement. He wanted nothing to do with law enforcement since I had connected with him, right? Since I'd built rapport, I'd built a little trust. I was able to get cooperation from him and bond with him, he now was kind of seeking companionship from me, right? He's holding my hand, right? Because he's all alone before that. Now he's holding my hand and ask about his brother. And I knew exactly what happened, that he had killed his older brother. <laughs> you know, he'd ran over him. But I didn't want to reveal that detail to him yet because I knew our, our high-value interrogation group was going to be the hospital to interrogate him later. And I thought in the back of my mind, they may be able to use that to leverage that in their questioning of him. So I just responded, I'll check on your brother for you. So we're in the ambulance ride. He's holding my hand. Again, it's a short 10-minute ride or so. We get there and hand him off to agents. First time I'd ever seen FBI agents in surgical gowns. It's kind of cool. <laughs> and they're literally accompanying him right into surgery, right? We do not let him out of our sight. And as you probably saw in the Netflix series, uh, this is the first time, at least in my career, where a subject was not Mirandized when they were in custody. This is one of those exceedingly rare exceptions to policy when there could be lives on the line from other bombs, right, or other terror cells. So he was questioned, again, just kind of fascinating, that shows you that... That's a Patriot Act thing, right? Then what they yes. said? But again, it has to be approved at the highest levels, right, of Department of Justice, uh, which it was, because it was such a, again, tension-filled moment in our nation's history. And we, again, had no idea whether there are other bombs or terror cells uh, out there. I hand them off right to the agents in the surgical gowns. I find some Boston PD officer who's about to leave. I ask him for a ride. He says, sure. And we're in the car. And then the tweet hits from the Boston PD captured. There's roadblocks all over. Remember, no one is on the streets. The place, Boston was empty. Watertown was empty. No one was out and about because of the shelter in place order. And now once this tweet is public, it's like bedlam. People flooding out of their houses. They're coming to the roadblocks. They see that we're in a police vehicle and, you know, I'm in tactical gear, or at least, you know, a vest, the police officer, and they start chanting USA, USA. And they start shaking our car in jubilation. And it was an incredibly moving experience to be a part of that see this just eruption of patriotism, this eruption of respect and appreciation for law enforcement and what we had just done, truly moving. That was the, at least the last time I personally felt the nation was 100% behind the blue. I, I hate that, that an incident like that is what caused us to come together like that. But it's good to know that it is possible that, that we can come together as, as a nation, as one, you know? Right. And I was very proud, right? The CNU, we had reopened the bars in Boston. There was a lot of people that were happy yeah, about that. One of our inside jokes. So yeah, we, we've reopened the bars in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, Kyle, as we wrap things up here, I just want to say, number one, thank you for being so open and honest and straightforward with us, uh, not just this time, but the previous time you've done some incredibly meaningful work. 
And it should be noted that Midland City, Alabama was, what, three months removed from this incident. So you're coming right off that. Yeah, just incredible four months you know, in a row was, it may not ever happen again, right? At least uh, being in the right place at the right time. And, and again, having that experience in the background, I, you know, as you look back through life, you almost think like fate and I was meant to be in both places at both times, I think. You performed, uh, you, you and, and I say you, but I'm talking about you and your team performed incredibly, incredibly well. I personally thank you for that. And for our listeners, I also want to throw out there that we're not done with Kyle after this podcast. Kyle has agreed to do some live training with our parent company, Virtual Academy. So July 19th of this year, Kyle and I will be doing a day of training at Madonna University for Virtual Academy partners. I'm going to be very selfish. I intentionally chose Kyle because Michigan's where I live. And these are my my closest brothers or sisters, that, and I want them to have the absolute best, and that's what Kyle is. So, Kyle, I can't tell you how excited I am to be sharing that day with you. Uh, I'm also intimidated by the fact that I'm sharing that day with you, but uh, I'm looking forward to doing some more work with you there. Oh, no reason to be intimidated. I truly feel thankful that, to have met your both acquaintances and to be able to enjoy our time together on the podcast. Uh, this has been great conversations, great questions. And I would like to disclose and remember you know, the four people that lost their lives. Crystal Campbell, Martin Richard, Lou Lynchy, and Sean Collier all paid the ultimate price in April of 2013. And I think a good place to, to end, Kyle, is you had a fantastic post on LinkedIn. And I, I want to pull out a couple of words that you said there that I think in incredibly important to not only this situation, but in our lives in general. And you said, use words not weapons, to build rapport and establish communication. I think that's a great way to look at things and try to handle situations in general. Absolutely. And especially the time of deep division in our country between people. And it it pains me to see these kind of bridges and, and silos which people operate in. So one of the things I'm trying to do also is to have people build bridges, to to look for ways to connect with people, right? To develop genuine, meaningful connections to see the commonalities between people. Because if I can connect with a terrorist, right, someone who killed people, but if I can connect with a terrorist to try to save other lives, then certainly we can get along with a, a neighbor who's maybe a different political perspective than we have or has different ideology. We all are Americans and hopefully people will realize that the power of words and the things we can do when we try to connect with others. Very well said. Thank you so much for uh telling your side of the story with us. We are genuinely humbled by the fact that you would uh, to choose us to do that. So we thank you, Kyle. Oh, thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. 